Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. As you know, I love books. They're what I make. They're what I do for fun. And then, of course, if that wasn't enough, I also have this bookstore, The Painted Porch, here in Bastrop, Texas, which all of you are welcome at and would like, and I'd love to see you at some time. But one of the perks, of course, of the Daily Stoic podcast is that I get to talk to authors of books that I like. Um, I get to, now as I'm reading, particularly new books that have just come out, I'm thinking like, oh, I want to ask the author about this, right? Or uh, that reminds me of this. I want to talk to so-and-so about that. And so one of the perks of doing the podcast now for two years, three years, I don't know, doing these interviews is that I get to talk to authors I admire about the books and I get to bring that to you. And in this special bonus episode, it's a compilation episode. It's on the best interviews I think I've ever done with authors talking about some big ideas from their books. James Clear is going to be talking to us about how to get 1% better every day. Robert Greene, for his part, is going to be talking about the power of daily practice Brad Stuhlberg on the practice of groundedness, Tom Nichols on uh, the assault on modern thinking, right, misinformation, disinformation, and Julia Bard is talking to us about the idea of phosphorescence, which I think is so important and so beautiful. 
Really happy to bring you this uh, compilation episode. And this is me chatting with James Clear. If you haven't read Atomic Habits, absolutely should. Fantastic book. I think it was actually the first book that we sold at The Painted Porch. Click a link in the show notes or uh, pick it up at The Painted Porch or wherever you buy books. A New Year's resolution, the problem with that is that you are focusing, you are starting with the result. I want to lose 40 pounds. I want to learn, uh, I want to know Spanish. You know, like you're picking a thing and you're saying, I want to get that result. When really when you're talking about identity, you're also talking about process. It should be, I want to, I, I want to eat better meals on a daily basis as opposed to I want to get a certain thing or I want to write a book is, is not the right goal. It should be, I'm, I'm going to start writing. Like, you, you know, it's the doing the thing versus focusing on the outcome. Well, and this is kind of one of the, I don't know, discoveries I had as I was working on the book and writing about the topic more is that when you stick to the process, like you're saying right now, when you like perform habits consistently, every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so by doing those habits, you're casting these little votes for the type of person that you are, the identity that you believe you have, you're sort of reinforcing that internal narrative. And so by building small habits, by sticking to the process, you are in that moment, reinforcing that identity. And ultimately, once you get to that point where you say, Hey, actually, you know, I've done this enough times. I think this is part of my story. Like I am a basketball player or I am a meditator or I am a writer or whatever it is. Um, you're no longer pursuing behavior change at that point because you're already, you're not trying to be someone new. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you see yourself to be. And, you know, like take, you know, you're a great example of this as uh, say someone who has the identity of a writer or an author. Now that doesn't necessarily mean the task of writing is easy for you or that it doesn't require any effort, but the act of writing every day is in alignment with how you view yourself. The, the internal narrative of I'm an author, or, I'm a writer. You're not like trying to convince yourself or in the case of many habits or new year's resolutions, people say things like I need to get motivated or I need to get amped up or like, I need the willpower to do it. And like, you don't necessarily need to get motivated to be a writer. You already view yourself in that way. Um, now you still need to stick to the habit. You still need to do the work, but I think it's the, the work takes on a different characteristic at that point. Once you start to identify as the type of person who does that consistently. And it's, it's sort of paradoxical. So I get why it's, it's hard for people to understand. Like you, you hear Bill Belichick or someone talk about the process and you're like, but you've won the most games out of anyone or, or in Zen and the art of archery, you know, he talks about, you know, put the target out of your mind, you know, what's the point of archery if you're not aiming at the target, right? So it, it feels insane. And, and that's probably why people have resistance to it. And I, I think where I've come down is like, okay, obviously having goals is better than someone who has no goals. But then it's like, once you have the goal, philosophically, you get to a place where the goal becomes not important. So it's a, it's a weird contradiction that you're asking people to wrap their heads around. Well, and I kind of feel like if you really care about the goal, you'll focus on the system. You know, like if you, if you actually care about getting the result, which supposedly is what we all are doing this for the archer is trying to hit the bullseye, the football players trying to win the championship and so on. Supposedly results matter so much and we care so much about them. And this is coming by the way, from someone who is very results oriented. Like I've kind of had to, you know, like do therapy on myself or whatever to get myself to focus on the process more and not be so hung up on the outcome. But if you do care about the outcome so much, then you need to focus on the system and the process because that's how you actually achieve it. And furthermore, being outcome focused will help you achieve a goal one time, 
But if you want to keep winning again and again, you have to be focused on the system. And so uh, goals are good for uh, one-time wins. Systems are for people who want to win repeatedly. And I feel like that's kind of where I, um, how I think about the distinction between the two. Yeah. What's that, what's that joke where it's like, uh, once you're lucky twice, you, you have good systems, you mm. know, or twice you're good. You know, it, it's like doing it once is easy or it can be random, but if you're trying to replicate it, there needs to be some sort of process. Right. And I, I'd be curious too, as an author, like, again, this goes to the sports thing is you have, you want your book to be successful. No one writes a book and then they hope nobody reads it, but then they also, the place this, this uh, process comes in, Mark Surrealis talks about this. He goes like, sanity is tying your happiness to your own actions. Mm. You know, like if your goal on your book, it like you can't really have a system that guarantees you too much of the external results. Like you can't have a system that is going to make your book a number one New York Times bestseller. You can have a system that should generate a good book. You know, like right. you can have the system to focus on the parts that are in your control. And then you also have to get to a place where you write off the parts that are not in your control as being much less consequential. Yeah. I kind of think about it like you have things that you don't control at all. The weather, for example, then you have things that you influence, but you don't control them. You know, like if you're playing someone in tennis, you can influence the outcome. You can't control how they play or where they shoot, hit their shots or whatever. Um, and then you have things that you're like fully under your control, you know, what you choose to wear today or whatever. Um, and most of the things that really matter in life fall in the middle category. You can influence them, but you can't totally control them. And so at some point, at least for myself, like with writing atomic habits, I had to kind of be at peace with the effort that I put in or something like I didn't want to get to the end of it, you know, depending on how you measure it, it took somewhere between three to five years to finish the book. Your whole life. And I didn't want to get to the end of that process and feel like I hadn't given the best effort I could. Um, now I hoped it would do well and hit a bestsellers list and sell a bunch of copies and all that, but I can't control that. But I just wanted to feel like I had influenced every bit of that process that I could. And then, you know, then we'll see what happens. And, um, you know, there's always something more you could have done, but I, I'm at peace with the effort I gave, you know, and I feel like that's, uh, that was probably the most important thing for me. And then the fact that it has worked out well, you know, just makes it all feel much better afterward. Yeah, that's that's the extra. But I mean, imagine if you'd gotten the results, but you knew that it wasn't as good. Like, you know, uh, like that's that's a weird position to be in that I've been in at different times in my life. And I'm sure you've seen it with articles or something where you did a pretty good job, but it wasn't like your best. Yeah. There's, a, there's a there's a weirdness to it. I mean, you still enjoy well, there's it. Something about nice. the, um, there's something about the struggle that makes the outcome more, uh, you know, enjoyable. Like I think about, imagine if you had spent your whole career, you played football as a kid and through high school and college, and you're finally like the kicker on the Super Bowl winning team and you kick the field goal to win the game and how that would feel after spending 25 years of your life dedicated toward that, that goal versus being like a professional soccer player. And then you retire and you're like, Hey, you know what? I might try out for a team. And then you turns out you can be the kicker and then the starter gets hurt and you end up kicking the game winning field goal in the Super Bowl. And it's like, it would still be really cool but I don't know that it would be the same because you don't have the struggle before it. And so there needs to be some kind of, yeah, the height of your joy is tied to the depth of your sorrow in that sense. And the more that you, the more effort that you put in, the, the better it feels when you do have some success. 
There's a there's a story I just found, and you can't steal it because it's going to be in my next book. But um, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Carter was a was a nuclear engineer before he was a a, a a politician, and before I guess before he was a peanut farmer. But he 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 went to the Naval Academy, and uh, he, he was sort of up for this promotion as a naval officer. And he was he was interviewed by uh, Admiral Rickover, who single handedly basically invents the idea of a nuclear submarine. And anyways, he, he's in this he's in this long interview, and these are these notoriously like insane interviews. Um, he was like a, a really difficult guy to please. And so he's asking Jimmy Carter about all his accomplishments. And he goes, you know, uh, you know, how, how did you, how did you do in your class at, at, uh, at the Naval Academy? And he says, oh, I was 59th in my class of 400, uh, which is extremely difficult. And he said, how did you do on this posting? And he, he goes through and he's like sort of beaming, listing all his accomplishments. And um, Rick overlooks at him and he just goes, did you always do your best? And he was like, it, it, he was going to be like, yes, you know, look, look at all my accomplishments. And then, and then he, he thought about it and he said, no, I, I didn't always do my best. And then uh, Rick over just got up and left the room. And he, it, Jimmy Carter said the rest of his life was trying to provide a better answer to that question. And mm. so it, it was interesting to me to go like, he'd had this incredible career as one of the top people in the Navy, top of his class, but as soon as he had to look at it from the side of like, was it actually the best he was capable of doing? The accomplishment became totally meaningless. And I think that's a good, that's a good microcosm of life. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a, yeah, that's a wonderful example of this idea. And it also encourages you to measure outcomes in a different way. You know, like we spend so much time measuring outcomes on how they are relative to everyone else. You know, how much money am I making relative to the person next to me? Or what is the number on the scale relative to the other people in, you know, on the team or in my class or whatever, all these other things that are like status symbols of some sort. And this is like an internal measure, which is, um, also interestingly, both of those are about feelings. One is about how you feel compared to others. And one is about how you feel with like your self-esteem and reputation with yourself. And, um, I don't know. There's, I think there's probably a strong encouragement to measure it more in the second way than the first. Well, it's funny because both uh, our mutual friend, Mark Manson, and I use this, the story of Dave Mustaine in, in our, I, I did an Ego's the Enemy and he did it in uh, The Subtle Art. But, you know, here's this guy, he gets, he, he's the lead guitarist and founder of Megadeth. That seems like a great accomplishment. But in light of the fact that he was kicked out of Metallica, that's a, not an accomplishment. Um, and it's like so many people would kill to have sold the amount of books that you've sold, but then you, so you can, and if I had told you at the beginning of your book, this is what you're going to have, you'd be like, that's an unmitigated success, but you can still, but, but that's the problem with comparison and, and focusing on things that are outside your control is you can immediately render your own accomplishment meaningless by, by looking at someone who sold one more than you. And that's like the, the <laughs> shitty thing we do to ourselves. I don't know why we do that. You know, like I fall into that just as much as everybody else. You could get like whatever your current level of uh, output is or success is that becomes your new baseline. And then you just look at whoever is slightly above that. And then you, you feel the way you did before. And it's like, you need to remind yourself when you wanted what you currently have, you know, like there are so many things about my current lifestyle that I've spent the last decade working toward. And like, I thought that was the thing I really wanted, you know, and then you get to here and uh, you feel differently. So I don't know. I, um, there's some kind of recalibration that goes on there. There's some kind of encouraging uh, type of encouragement that we all need to like 
focus on those good bits that we have earned already rather than uh, looking, always looking toward the next milestone. And I think this also connects back to what we were talking about a minute ago with process versus goals or systems versus outcomes, which is that this is one of the downsides of being goal oriented is that you're always looking at the next milestone versus being process oriented or system oriented, which is, you know, I can feel really good about myself right now because I got two good hours of writing in this morning and that was an accomplishment and it felt like a good day already. You know, like the day has already been a victory. I don't need to like be thinking about all these other huge goals and then all of a sudden turn it into a failure. And here is my interview with the one and only Robert Greene. I got to talk to him a couple times this year, uh, twice in person, which uh, was just incredible for me. And I got to work on help bring into existence his wonderful new book, The Daily Laws, Meditations on Power, Strategy, Seduction, and Mastery. It's actually the second best-selling book in The Painted Porch this year. Check that out, and here is my interview with Robert Greene on The Daily Laws. This is the new book, The Daily Laws. I see it as kind of a greatest hits album, Uh uh, a best of Robert Greene. Because to me, I feel like it's a question people ask me a lot. They... They'll hear me or someone else talk about you, mm-hmm. and then they'll go, what Robert Green book should I start with? And it's kind of a tricky thing, because if you go 40 Laws of Power, maybe they get turned off because it's dark. If you went with seduction, maybe they're, that's not what they're in. It, it, to me, it's, it's actually a question I get with the Stokes, too, like, who should you start with? It, it feels really hard, but this is, to me, perfect, because it's basically the best of all your stuff in the most digestible way. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking to a football player, actually, uh, he plays at Alabama and he was, he had heard that the laws of human nature was really good. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's probably, to me, that's like advanced class Robert Greene. <laughs> Maybe not where I would start if I was 19 years old. Yeah, it depends. It depends on your background. And if you read a lot of books on psychology and if you can, stomach going through a nearly 600-page book. (laughs) But it's, you know, I have a lot of people who you wouldn't think would be reading The Laws of Human Nature, but who read it slowly and bit by bit. And particularly if you're in a situation where you're dealing with a lot of difficult people. But the way I look at the book is a little bit differently in that um, I sort of see like it embodying kind of two main lessons that I've derived in life. The first one. Yeah, the first one was... um, You know, unlike you, I did not have any success in my life until I was essentially 38 years old. And prior to that, I had a lot of very painful experiences as I kind of wandered my way through the work world. And I was sort of entered the work world out of college with all of these silly illusions about people, about success, about who I was. And slowly they all got knocked down one by one. It was very painful and very emotional and it caused me a lot of drama and it probably set me back several years. Although in the end, it gave me all the material for the 48 laws of power. And what I sort of learned from all of that, that crap that occurred to me was that really what I needed to, to forge was kind of this realistic outlook on life. Sure. Where I get rid of all the bullshit, all the things that you learned in university, all the bad ideas that you got from your parents, all the bad ideas that you get from your peers. And you're able to look at the world relatively objectively, and I mean relatively. And it doesn't mean that life becomes this kind of boring, gray world of just, it actually becomes more exciting and fulfilling. And so I learned that the hard way 
but that kind of realistic attitude, which I was forged through a lot of battles, is really, really what allowed me to write the 48 Laws of Power. And the second thing was the power of daily practice, yes. of habits. Now, I've been meditating for about 11, exactly 11 years now, every single day. I don't miss a single day. I miss one day. I make sure the next day I do two times. And the habit of doing it every day is just very fulfilling. It becomes something I look forward to, and it's really helped have a profound effect upon me. But habits of work and discipline where every day you attack something is where our, the power of our brain operates maximally. So this is a book that every day is going to make you meditate on something, and it's going to infuse you with that realistic outlook that I think kind of actually literally saved my life. No, I think, I think that's right because, and what I found with The Daily Stoic is you read it once and you're getting the sort of greatest hits survey course of the works and thinking of Robert Greene. And there is a lot of value in that and that's more than the $26 or whatever the book costs. <laughs> but it's, it's really on read number two and three right. or 50, depending on how young you are when you buy the book. Right. That's where the value of the daily practice is. Like, I imagine your meditation is relatively the same as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And the power is the groove you get into doing the same thing over and over again. Right, right. And I think, you so you mentioned that the laws of human nature is 600 pages. So there's a percentage of the population that could read a 600-page book. But how many people are going to take time to read a 600-page book two or three times? And the books that have really influenced me have been books that I've interacted with over the course of my life. Right, right. Yeah, I think there's something really special about the daily practice. This is what, like, for instance, daily or nightly Bible study is for certain people. It's, again, the words are the same, but you're different, and what you just went through or are going to go through that day is different. This is that Heraclitus idea that we never step in the same river twice. I think there's something really cool about revisiting the same ideas over and over again. Well, um, the thing is, I, my philosophy has always been you have to make ideas your own. Mm -hmm. You have to take what somebody teaches and you have to put it into your own experience. It can't just be these dead words yes. that you kind of digest that have no relevance to your daily experience. You have to take them and they have to come to life within you, within your own experience. So you read a passage and uh, it's not maybe what I'm really going through right now, but you kind of maybe recall some experiences in the past that might be relevant. And then the second day you come upon something that is maybe a little bit closer. And then as you go through it more and more and more, that kind of soaks in and you see more and more access points to your daily experience. And then it can kind of become something that you internalize. Yeah, I talk about sort of using the confirmation bias like against itself or using the confirmation bias to your advantage. So like I'll hear from people and they'll be like, how did you know on today's entry Daily Stoic, that this is exactly what I needed. Well, the truth is I didn't, right? I wrote it five years ago, and you might be in Australia, and someone in America might be reading different entries on the same day. So it's really that we bring to the text right. exactly what we need. It's why fortune cookies and horoscopes right. seem to have power, yeah. is that we see in them what we already knew, right. but couldn't articulate to ourselves and there's sort of a Delphic quality there where, like, right. it's just vague. Like, your passages are just short enough, just general enough that whatever you're going through, it could feel like that was exactly 
yeah. the advice that you needed that morning. Well, I had the experience, very weird experience with the 48 Laws of Power when it first came out. I would go, it's my very first book tour, and I would go to, I was in Washington, and I went to the, um, what was it called? Voice of America. Yeah. And this woman comes running up to me in the hallway saying, God, that book that you just described exactly what I'm going through. Everything is just so perfect. You must have, you must know Washington really well. I said, no, I <laughs> the same thing happened to someone who's in the, um, in the, what's the world, the charitable world, what do you call it? The oh, non profit, yeah. The non profit world. They did the same thing. Then athletes will say it. So, yeah, you kind of project and you, your own emotions and your own experiences of the moment into what you're reading. That's totally viable. And I think that's also what happens when it's why Buddhism and Stoicism and Christianity often feel very aligned, even though they didn't particularly influence each other. Because also when you boil something down to its essence, like in the way that in comedy, the really specific becomes universal because it's actually not that specific. It's tapped into something uniquely human uh, that everyone can relate to, even if the experiences are very different. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I was also thinking when I was when we were talking about this book that, in a way, maybe maybe not everyone knows this, but I actually think the daily concept is slightly. It goes back to the very beginning for you because, if I remember correctly, you told me once that the original plan for the Forty Laws of Power was fifty-two laws, <laughs> which could have been a week. You know, of reading uh, a passage a week. Although you, if I remember correctly, you got you got rid of that specifically, so people didn't do that. Yeah, it was also like playing cards, which there are fifty-two. Hours. Oh, right. No, no, no. I mean, but the calendar fifty-two weeks. But I mean, what happened was I mean I've told the story before. Is the publisher normally my um, relationship to publishers is don't tread on me, hands off, get as far away from my material as yes. possible. Do not edit it. I don't trust you. But in this instance, but I'm open to their ideas. And in this instance, they said, 52 laws of power doesn't sound so great. What we really want is 48. And the 52 sounded too much like a gimmick. Yeah. And I agreed because I can't be rigid about things. Sure. So what I did was I took four of the laws and combined them with other ones. So I didn't get rid of anything. I just kind of made into, into 48. I just sort of fitted it in. Well, and that is the 48th law. Well, assume formlessness, right? That actually they can be moved around yeah. and combined with each other. But I'm also violating a lot, which seems don't show your own tricks. But that's true. But it's 23 years later, so I don't really care anymore. <laughs> but and isn't it also funny that like so when it's when you're working on it, it's like could be 42, could be 48, um, and then uh, then once it's done and in the world. It's like 48 is obviously yeah. the right number. Like, no other number could have worked. Yeah. yeah, people always say, what's the 49th law of power? I said, there's no such thing. It's only 48. Right. Everything in the universe. But, you know, numbers have a, a kind of a, a feel to them, you know? And so the, the, word for, the number 48 has a kind of power already in it, which is, whereas 47 or 46 doesn't have that kind of resonance. Although if... It had been the 47 laws of power and it had sold millions of copies and had the influence. I think everyone would be saying, obviously, there's no 48th law. There's only 47 laws. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's, we sort of look backwards and we're like, it could have only been the way that it was. But yeah. in reality, there was it was more malleable than... It was. It was. And, you know, to be honest with you, when I first started doing the research for it, God, so many years ago, 
I had like 72 laws. Wow. I mean, the original concept was I was going through all my research and Yost, the man who kind of packages my material and did the cover of this book, um, he said, well, Robert, what do you, how's it coming? And I said, well, I'm working on these kind of laws of power. And he goes, wow, that sounds great. Just that phrase? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, and I said, yeah, I kind of have like 72. And he goes, well, just, you know, go with it. And then I sort of like kept reducing and reducing and reducing them until it came to 48, so over 52, whatever. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next to listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors with and you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audio book that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio piques the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. Here is me chatting with Brad Stolberg. His new book, The Practice of Groundedness, is wonderful. I also like his book, Peak Performance. So here's me talking with Brad. Yeah, and I was thinking about this idea of groundedness, which is the new book. Like I was thinking about how much more literally grounded my life is. Like I was walking on a dirt road this morning instead of concrete. There were no cars going by. I was outside. Like I I think there's also, um, you know, none of almost nowhere you can live in the United States at this point is like sort of pristine nature. But I do think the, a, a, even the suburbs are more natural than the sort of concrete jungle, busy city life, which I find like, I I think it wasn't until I moved out of New York city that I was quite, and then I went back, like I moved out. And then I, now when I travel there, particularly as I've gotten older, how much, how viscerally the noise pollution affects me. Like, um, you go through your life not hearing large trucks or horns or jackhammers, and then you hear them and you're like, oh, wow, this is awful. Like, this isn't natural to hear all the time. And you can get really used to hearing it. So you're not aware of the harm, the percussive harm that's having on your body, but it is there. Yeah. You know, the, the biologist E.O. Wilson has done fascinating research that basically shows that if you think of our species on a 24 hour clock for about 23 hours in, I don't know, 57 to 56 minutes, 
we lived in these open spaces in bands and tribes of between 10 and 150 people. So the frenetic tumult of city living to an extent, even suburban living is very unnatural to how our mind and bodies evolved. Now, are we evolving with it? In some ways, yes. But I think that a lot of modern illnesses, anxiety, depression, um, you can throw burnout in there are very much because like the pace of cultural evolution has outpaced what our mind-body systems can do. And if you put someone in an environment that is extremely frenetic, then it's not surprising that that person will have a tendency to become more frenetic themselves. Yeah. Although one thing I struggle with, and I talk about this at the beginning of Stillness is the Key, I, I sort of tell this scene uh, of Seneca in his uh, in his apartment in Rome. There's all like shockingly modern sort of busy noises. And, and he says, uh, you know, I force my mind to concentrate and I keep it from straying to things outside itself. All outdoors may be bedlam, provided there is no disturbance within. I don't want to say it's guilt, but there is a part of me that thinks like, you know, if you really are Zen or you really are Stoic or you really have done the philosophical work, you should be able to have stillness or peace or quiet or happiness in any environment. And so is there, again, it doesn't, it's not weakness, but is it somewhat of a, of an, uh, of a cheat to, uh, just opt out of all that entirely and live a sort of an artificially uh, isolated or, um, you know, uh, protected or privileged lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? For sure. And I think there's a huge spectrum. And perhaps one extreme is living in a monastery where Mm -hmm. the outside world is completely kept at bay. And then on the other extreme might be living in you know, Manhattan, excuse me, living in Manhattan and, um, is either right or wrong. No, I don't like to put a value judgment around it. I think what I am saying and was certainly what my research and reporting has showed is that for most people, your temperament can get you so far doing your individual work can get you so far and environment matters a lot too. Um, Are there people that have achieved tranquility of mind and calm and as you would call stillness that can be in the midst of just total circus and remain at ease and calm? For sure. Um, Are those people few and far between? And is that harder than what most people have the capacity for? Yes, I think so. And then it's like, if you have a choice, why not make it a little bit easier on yourself? I mean, I'd certainly find myself more creative, more calm, more grounded living outside of a big city than in it. And, you know, life is for me more than just like a big self-improvement project. So I might as well be happy here. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's sort of like, I I think this is something you see in meditations a lot. Marcus Aurelius sort of doesn't want to be emperor. He's sort of forced upon him. And so he's writing to himself about, you know, how you can be happy anywhere, you know, how you should focus on, you, you can retreat inside your soul at any moment, um, which is all well and good, but it, if he actually, if if there actually was a path in in which he could not be emperor and it wasn't an abdication of duty, then you know I, I I guess I don't see anything philosophically wrong with taking it. So yeah, if you're fleeing to a monastery to escape bingo uh, problems or responsibilities, then you know that's that's not what we're talking about. If if you're doing it to optimize or refine, or you're doing it 
because you have a spectrum of options and you're choosing the best option for you, there's probably no problem with that. Yeah, I said bingo because I think you hit the nail on the head there, man. Um, I think in general, not just when it comes to a place to live, but if you're running away from something or trying to escape something, generally speaking, that's going to come back to bite you in the ass. If you are moving towards something, generally speaking, that's a good decision. Um, and it's a, it's a subtle nuanced difference, but, um, I think that it, it takes you either all the way in a route towards avoidance and diminishing your life or all the way in a route towards enlarging your life. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's well said is, is, are you stepping towards the challenge or are you running away from the challenge? Yep. Or, or in, 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 you know, in, in groundedness, the framework that I use is like core values. So what are your core values? What do you really value in are you escaping something that's scary or are you moving to be in greater alignment with those core values? Um, there's all kinds of extreme examples. Somebody that's in recovery might make the decision to leave a community where there are users or even just where the physical environment triggers use. Sure. Now, is that person weak? I guess it depends on who you're asking, but if that person's core value of sobriety or clear-mindedness trumps their core value of community, then of course they're going to leave their community. Um, and I think that so many people, myself included, I think it's almost impossible to live in the 21st century and not be a little bit addicted to conventional definitions of success and all the striving that comes with it. I think place for me plays a big role in that. So if I could get out of a place that felt like I was more in this conventional success, you're defined by what you have, everything is super expensive to a place more where success is like, you know, I actually spent two and a half hours working on my garden. Um, I just feel better as a result. Yeah. And I think, um, I think if you're, is, is, is running, is moving away because it triggers you or, you know, makes it hard to be sober. Is that a a move of weakness or is it just as easily a a move of strength because it's coming from a place of self-awareness? So it's, you're saying, look, I had this sort of problem. I I don't want to, I don't want to say addiction is self-discipline, but you're saying I have a problem being disciplined about something. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to, to make a giant, uh, move out of discipline to prov- to reduce my exposure to potential lapses in discipline right so I, I i like that yeah i mean it's are you are you resisting the peanut m&ms on your counter or are you not buying them at the grocery store yes and for a lot of people it's easier not to buy them at the grocery store and i think it's important too to call out like the ability to move does require a certain set of like, I don't love to use the word privilege broadly, but I'll use it here, a certain amount of privilege. And I think it's really funny because I first started tinkering with this idea back in 2017 in a story I wrote for Outside Magazine when my family was getting serious about leaving the Bay Area. And I got all these notes saying, well, you know, how could you ever suggest that people move? It takes so much privilege. You're just another person that is out of touch. And of course, all those notes were coming from people that lived in like New York City, LA, or San Francisco. Yeah. So this isn't necessarily for everyone, but I think probably for lots of people that tune into this podcast, I think that it's often not a lack of privilege or a lack of autonomy. It's a lack of imagination to make decisions like this. No, I, I talk about moving uh, and, and immigration a little bit in the in the new book on courage, and and it's interesting. People, some people use sort of lack of resources as a reason to move, and some people use it as an excuse 
not to move. But I'm always amazed when people, you know, they find out that I live on a farm or that I moved to Texas or whatever. They're sort of like, how did you, like, how could you do that? And it's like, by making a lot less money than you do, right? Like it, it, the, the people that are often amazed that one could do something like that are actually not, are not impressed or surprised by the lack of, or by the privilege that made it possible. It's mostly uh, about the commitment or the actual want or desire or sort of, it, again, sounds like an overstatement, but also courage. Like, it, I guarantee you that what I purchased my farm for is less than many people I know's apartment in right. New York City. So, so it's often not so much an issue of resources, but about determination, commitment, or as you said, sort of core values. If it's important to you, you can figure it out. I, again, this is not true. Someone who's trapped in a in a you know in a projects in an inner city or something. Um, uh, th- there are obviously some people who are who are unable to change circumstances and or environment um, for for a bunch of reasons that are outside their control. But I think you tend to find the people who are most who are quickest with the, oh, I could never do that, um, actually could very easily do it. They've just decided not to. Exactly. So you, you, you do open the book pretty early on. You get into the Stoics. You, t- you talk about sort of acceptance and you talk about like, like life is not, which I think is a sort of very core Stoic principle, which is like, life is not easy. Life is not always fun. And if you don't understand this, you will suffer on top of that because you will be surprised, you will be resentful, you will be, but uh, you will bemoan it. Um, you will you will suffer uh, doubly as opposed to the person who simply comes to terms with the reality of existence, which both the, the Stoics and the Buddhists um, say is not without suffering. Right, and the Taoists too. I mean, that's a theme throughout the book. Is you know, my whole model is to go after truth. I call it truth with a capital T. Mm-hmm. So principles that I can be damn near certain are broadly applicable and reliably play out the same for people in different situations. So I'm interested in like, well, what does the modern science have to say? What is ancient wisdom? Not necessarily just one tradition, but where is their convergence? And then what's like real life practice? And here in acceptance, all the ancient wisdom traditions point towards this truth in the same way. Um, stoicism, you said there's that quote in the book, if you're going to use your hand, the exact quote might be a little bit different, but if you're going to use your hands and your feet, like your hands and your feet are going to get sore and calloused. Right. And what that means, if you're going to live a life, you're going to get beat up. In Buddhism, there's the parable of the second arrow, which says that the first arrow, which is something that you can't necessarily control either internally illness, externally, something in a relationship in your work, whatever it might be that hurts. But the second arrow, which is your judgment your repression, your delusion, your magical thinking, that ends up hurting worse. And then in Taoism, the the whole notion of the way is dancing in the flow of life and not resisting the dance. Um, so yeah, it's, it's such a powerful thing. And something that the traditional model of, you know, success pretty much like swings the entire opposite way on. You know, if something's going wrong, like you buy stuff and tweet or you numb it with substance, or you go on social media and you airbrush whatever image is wrong so it looks better. 
Um, so that's a theme throughout the book. I know it's core to your writing too, is that so much of what we're doing in modern society and really is causing so many of our modern ailments, um, because we're wired away from these values that ultimately lead to like a deeper, more fulfilling kind of success. I was very glad to talk with Tom Nichols on the assault on modern thinking. His book, The Death of Expertise, is a must, must read. Uh, definitely uh, a book uh, for and of these times. So check that out. Yeah, there's a great Richard Feynman quote where he's talking about how hard it is to really know something. And the work that it goes in to truly deeply understand an idea or a concept or a field of study. Um, and when you see these people making sort of glib, uh, uh, glib assumptions or, or quips or remarks or sweeping sort of generalizations, you know, you're saying, I know it's not true because they couldn't have done the work to possibly have the certainty that they're having. Um, right. Scott, in the book, I quote um, the utterly ridiculous human being, Scott Adams, who unfortunately, you know, is really, I mean, I really like his cartooning and, you know, he's good at cartooning. I mean, his punchlines are funny and the drawings are amusing, but this is also a guy who said, give me an hour with, you know, any subject matter expert and I can become an expert on a thing. Well, um, so I, I know Scott a little bit and I've, I've spent some time with him and, and like you, uh, I, obviously everyone's familiar with Dilbert. That's almost like the extreme end of the spectrum of this, where you, you ba it, it's almost like you have narcissism and then you combine it with the feedback loop of social media right. and you get a person who's basically become untethered from reality that, that I think any thinking person immediately goes like, what is wrong with this guy? And yet right. the irony right. is there is, there's a huge percentage or a huge number of people cumulatively who are, who are not only like, not suspicious. They're like, this guy fucking gets it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because again, it's, it's, you know, it's being in the, it's being in the treehouse with the cool kids, uh, saying we're all the smart kids, you know, not those stupid nerds, you know, down in the lab and, and, uh, it's reassuring, right? It's like, this guy's very rich and he's famous and he's in the entertainment world. And, you know, we're, and obviously, you know, he must really know what's what, um, part of that too is that we have become obsessive about the idea that if you're good at one thing, you're good at anything. Yeah, um, it's like, well, this guy's a, an award-winning cartoonist. He must know a lot about foreign policy, um, you know, which is inane and and silly. Um, but I, I, I mean, the the you talk about the feedback loop of social media, and that's a big part of it of people saying, "Wow." You know, I mean, I, I guess I kind of like the fact that a lot of my Twitter presence is people telling me how much how wrong I am and how much they disagree. Um, but it, it really is important to understand some of the limitations here. And I, I'll give you an example. I kind of surprised I was in um, Switzerland and a graduate student who was just finished her dissertation on Russian politics said, you know, um, I really want your opinion about this because I, I, you know, I, I, I'm curious about the better sources and did I use the right stuff? And I said, look, I wrote my dissertation 33 years ago. You wrote yours yesterday. And on this, you're the new expert. Mm -hmm. It's okay to turn it over. It's okay to say, look, I have a lot of accumulated knowledge and I can help you with some things, but it's also okay to say, um, you know, I, I'm not required to be this, this omnicompetent and omniscient 24 hours a day. I, I love the fact that in some environments I've been in, um, 
some years ago, about 12 years ago, I, I went on a fellowship to the Kennedy School and I was immediately the dumbest guy in the room. And it was invigorating. The problem is people don't like that feeling anymore. Everybody has to say, well, you're not smarter than I am. I know all about nuclear weapons. I understand Iranian, you know, centrifuge inspections. You can't talk down to me. And all of that comes from, I mean, I, I, I have a pretty healthy ego about my, you know, the things I'm good at, about my writing, about the work I've done. But um, it's almost a relief to be able to say, wow, someone smarter than me is helping me out here. People don't feel that way anymore. They take it because they are narcissistic and childlike about this. Anytime someone says, let me explain something to you, they say, what are you saying? I'm stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, maybe, the, maybe I am a little bit. You know? the, yeah, I think this goes back to Socrates that the essence of wisdom is what you don't know, and the Socratic method is is based on what it's the asking of questions, not the making of statements. And I think social media, in particular, prioritizes assertions of a fact of fact and opinion compared to you know questions or uncertainties, and and it prioritizes negativity, of course. Uh, nobody, nobody comes on to Twitter um, to or or to Facebook to say, "Hey, I really liked this." Um, and it's funny, you know, because people it, it, they will even um, zero in on the negativity and strain out the positivity. Um, you know, every Saturday I get together with my friend Dennis Herring, who's a um, Grammy, you know, humble brag, my friend, the Grammy-winning music producer. Um, you know, and we sit around and shoot the breeze about bad 1970s music while we're listening to old Casey Kasem recordings, uh, old Casey Kasem replays on, on XM radio. And, you know, about half the time I'll say, oh, I really remember this song and I really love this song. And I, you know, I have fond memories of this song. But the minute I say, man, this song is crap, people will zero in and say, you're negative about everything. Because it's almost like our brains are wired now on social media only to see the negative comment because it's a challenge. No one takes a positive comment as a challenge. No one takes a comment that, hey, I really like, you know, the Almond Brothers as a, um, you know, as a challenge to say, oh, yeah, well, what about, you know, Marshall Tucker? But if you say, I don't like the Almond Brothers, people say, aha, now I have something to fight about. And this is why you're wrong. And this is why you should do this. And, and I think it's just, you know, Facebook admitted this recently, and it's in the book, in my, my new book, Facebook admitted our algorithm appeals to a basic human attraction to division and conflict. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up that, you know, some people think that the book is about the failures of expertise, because there, there have been failures of expertise, which is precisely what uh, people seize upon to undermine expertise Generally, like I think about how many, you know, in retrospect, ridiculous or incorrect takes there must, you're sort of dating this back to the seventies. I think about like what health or diet advice must have been like oh, yeah. in the seventies. And then, then we wonder like why people don't trust the medical establishment or the FDA. Now it is problematic, but, but it's, it's interesting that, uh, we, the, the failures of expertise have not, have, have made us more likely to accept dubious information from even less credible people. Because they're an excuse. And this is the problem with the failures of expertise. And this is where experts, I think, have to own some of this because the public has been so rough on them about the failures rather than the successes that experts now don't want to engage with the public and don't want to own their failures. Um, look at the beginning of the pandemic where Fauci and you know CDC, they admit and they said, look, we didn't want to cause a run on masks 
Um, we screwed up the mask advice. We're owning that. We're sorry. And they're saying, aha, so you admit that you're just a bunch of lying charlatans that we should never listen to about anything. Right. And that makes experts gun shy to say, you know, if we ever admit a mistake, that means we have to just like everything else we ever say becomes irrelevant. I had someone say to me, for example, when I was doing a talk on um, a, a book talk in person on the death of expertise, and I pointed out how I had given my own doctor hell about um, eggs, right? Yeah. I said, doc, you told me not to eat eggs. And he, he sort of shrugged and he said, yeah, we got that wrong. Okay. Well, first of all, who figured out that eggs were okay for you? Other doctors doing <laughs> right. other studies that fact checked, you know, this is called peer review and science, which is a process. Um, but a guy in the audience said, well, I think it's very clear uh, that this shows that doctors don't know anything about heart disease. In other words, I want to drink a bottle of scotch and eat a cheeseburger for breakfast. And now I can because I caught you out on this one thing that now invalidates that you don't know anything about anything. And this is really a problem of, again, I keep coming back to this description of childlike, um, but you know, adults understand that other well-meaning adults will occasionally make mistakes and get things wrong. What children do is to say, aha, I caught you and now I'm going to dunk on you and you never, I never have to listen to you again because this one time, um, you know, you were wrong about something. And people extend that even to cases where experts were not wrong. Uh, someone pointed out the other day that um, when talking about the vaccine, you know, the anti-vaxxers are saying, well, this is the same FDA that approved thalidomide, the, the drug that caused birth defects. And of course, the FDA, in fact, did not approve thalidomide and saved millions of Americans from potentially deadly effects because the FDA said, we looked at this and we don't think it's safe. And yet people have gotten it into their head because an expert somewhere in Europe failed, all experts failed. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, that it, and that this thing that happened over 60 years ago, like is, is immediately, you know, if you say, look, you should really trust experts. They say, oh yeah, well, what about thalidomide in the space shuttle? Well, it's it's funny too because there's this weird kind of double standard where like there's this great graphic. Uh, it was like uh, Joe Rogan, and and I know that actually know the owners of this company, so it's it was extra funny to me. But it was like Joe Rogan questioning, you know, um, a bunch of peer review, you know, all this data, like let's say about vaccines or whatever. And then it was like, meanwhile, uh, Joe Rogan endorsing. Uh, on it alpha brain product which has you know one study with 60 participants that found a minor you know uh bit of a positive correlation and that's sufficient so it's i think your your point about being childlike what we see in this is actually not a rejection of expertise at all but a cherry picking of expertise yes. that fits what one wants and then ironically holding those experts to the most preposterously loose standards I've ever to go back to Scott Adams that Scott Adams really only credibility is that this guy makes a, a newspaper cartoon that that's been popular and is wealthy because of it but his predictions are like overwhelmingly incorrect and wrong all the time you know objectively so like, this is going to happen that doesn't happen this is going to happen that doesn't happen and, well, Jenny, and of course, Jenny McCarthy, Jenny McCarthy right. and the anti-vax movement. What are your qualifications? Well, I'm beautiful and I was in Playboy and I'm an actress. And I did. She literally said at one point, I went to Google University. Right. No. And that, that's what I think is interesting about Scott Adams is like 
if if he were to be held to the skepticism or scrutiny that the 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 things that are being tossed out were held to i mean he would he would crumble like a like a house of cards right it so it's this weird picking and choosing of expertise and then a moving of the goalposts or the standards by which one judges the experts to, and it really all comes back down to well, here's what I want to do, and I'm looking or what I'm afraid to do or not do or whatever it is, and how can I pick and choose information that either allows me to do this, absolves me of responsibility uh, or blame, and, and then therefore I can be whoever I want to be. That's so it's it's this weird not rejection of expertise, but a, but a, a misuse of expertise, so one does not have to be changed or challenged. And this is why when people say, well, you know, I did my research, I I always come back at them and say, no, you didn't do research. You surfed around the internet until you found the thing that agreed with what you wanted to think in the first place. Right. Um, you know, yeah, you did you went, do your own peer-reviewed study? Uh, right. you, you went to medical school? No, you Googled around, you looked at, you know, healthinfomindbody.com and you found- well, even a, worse. Yeah. Even worse than that, you you started by saying, I think vaccines are unsafe. So you went and typed in vaccines are unsafe. And of course, it brought up, you know, 100 sludgy websites that will that are run by, you know, kooks and charlatans who will tell you the vaccines are unsafe. Well, OK, you found what you were looking for. And then after you've spent all afternoon going down that rabbit hole and watching, you know, YouTube videos and looking at Facebook memes, you start walking around and saying, well, you know, I'm very informed on this. I'm, I did my research. Uh, a guy asked a question during one of my talks about this, where he said, why should I have to listen to these experts when the journals like the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine are online and I can read them anyway? And I said, and he got very, you know, I mean, I won't say upset, but he was offended. I said, they're not written for you. <laughs> right. You don't even know what you're looking at. I said, that's like reading Architectural Digest thinking you're going to build a house. They're written by experts for experts based on foundational knowledge that all of them already have. It, they are not there to peruse the back issues. I mean, you know, I, I was like medical students and researchers spend years trolling through these, trawling, I shouldn't say trolling, trawling through these articles to assemble them so that then they can be um, judged and test it against each other. And then a new paper, this is, again, this is called science. This is how it's done. Um, but I, I, again, I had that weird feeling of how did this happen that the ordinary citizen, and you know, on, when it comes to medical stuff, I'm as ordinary as it gets. I don't anybody think that they could just like say, well, I'll just go read the Lancet. <laughs> that'll, that'll, you know, uh, and I'll be up to snuff on this stuff. Today is the last day, the last day to sign up for the Daily Stoic New Year, New Year Challenge. I'd love to have you join me. I'll be doing it alongside you. It's 21 actionable challenges, one per day, built around the best Stoic wisdom, but for what? How to be better in the new year. This is the time when we start to think about what we're going to do next, where all the time went, what we wish had gone differently or better, how we're still struggling with this or that, how we'd like to, to stop doing this or that. And that's what the New Year New Challenge is, is all about. It's my favorite thing that we do, and it's three weeks of actionable challenges presented in one email per day, built around the best, most timeless wisdom in Stoic philosophy. It should help you snap out of this trance we've all found ourselves in and help make 2022 your best year yet. 
no matter what's happening in the world around you. Go to dailystoic.com slash challenge to join us. I'd love to have you. I'm challenging you to join me. I can't wait to see you. dailystoic.com slash challenge. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80. When you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic code SPACE80. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And then talking to Julia Baird, uh, her book on Queen Victoria is spectacular, a biography everyone should read. And uh, her new book, Phosphorescence, was just a joy for me to read one of my favorite books this year. So here's me talking to Julia Baird. There's a there's a river in Texas. It starts from a, a natural spring. Um, it's it's in San Marcos, and the, it, there's this sort of rare species of. Or I think it might be the only place. It's like a it's like a, an underwater rice. I forget what it's called, but it's this sort of wavy like tall grass yeah. and the the river is it's like millions of gallons are just coming up you see where the river starts it just starts out of nowhere yeah. and and it's you know millions of gallons are just pouring out and you get into water you can kind of swim against the current at like almost like a treadmill or one of those infinity pools and you're just watching these like waves of grass mm-hmm. you know go sway into the current like it's you know you're in the middle of the prairie somewhere but you're underwater mm-hmm. and it's one of the most sort of incredible rhythmic things that I've ever experienced in my life yeah. and you yeah I think you go and you experience one of those things and then you leave to me what the idea of the book your book is is like that energy that you bring back into the world yes. we need more of that yes I think that's right. And it's almost hard to put your finger on. And that's what I was trying to, to grasp. Like, what is that? When you're sitting on a hill in a, it's some area where there's no light pollution, you're looking at the stars, like, what is that? We all know that that soothes us. 
we all know that it makes us feel better, but 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 why? And and that's why I think you know scientists are, are trying to get to it. <laughs> um, and why have we designed life? to be literally the opposite of that and to have as little of that as humanly possible. That is the strange, That's strange right. thing about the modern world. The infinite distraction. I think that's Yeah. Infinite. Yeah. That's but right. even just environmentally, right? Like, like for instance, on the Gulf Coast in America, they it somewhat recently there's this like law that um, because turtles are attracted to light, you can't have lights on any building that faces the ocean. Huh. So it's pretty incredible, yeah. but you're sort of walking along the ocean. It's completely dark, uh, and it's you can actually see the stars, and it's wonderful. But to think that like this was a thing they had to this it's this incredible gift. Anyone that experiences experiences it loves it. Just as if you know you, you get out of the city and you're away from the light pollution, you can actually see the stars. You're like, this is incredible, and then you're like this only exists by accident or this only exists because they rammed this unpopular law down people's throats. If people had their, if people had the freedom to choose, they would choose not this, even though they love it when they have it. It's insane. Yeah, that's so true. It's like, it's almost like we're, we're, we're becoming toddlers again that need to relearn attention. I don't know about you, but when I write, I download, um, I think the Freedom app, so it locks all of my other internet access on my computer, and I don't get right. distracted because otherwise I'm back. And then sometimes I have to go and put my phone like the other end of the house or something, so I'm not looking at that. I have to, I have to really fight for my attention, and that's why I right. have eco resorts where they promise you you can't get Wi-Fi <laughs> um, because we get distracted. But the more the world, you know, has become urbanised, and we only tipped over a few years ago into more people living in urban than regional centres, the more we're going to have to be reminded of these mountain, growing mountain of evidence about how good green is for us, the side of green, even in yes. plants, even in our house, like and in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, how crucial that is. I was just reading an article this morning about the shrinking backyard in Australia um, and what that's going to mean in terms of climate and creating kind of little heat pools. So, um yeah, it's. Um, I was reminded of this too when the, so I'm not sure if you're aware of this like this this growing um, forest therapy movement. Mm -hmm. And I went and met um, uh, Professor King Lee in uh, Tokyo to talk to him about it. And he is a very busy and in demand moment. Um, um, Shunrin Yoko is a Yoko is what it's um, called. This so. And, and people are being taught around the world to be forest therapists and also to go on these, uh, you know, um, walks into natural areas and use all their five senses and take it in slowly. And, and what I find that wonderful in the sense that that's what people do and obviously it's not too expensive and all tied up with eco-resorts that, they, you know, that not everyone can access. That's a great thing to be doing, but there's also strikes me at the same time that it's it's almost sad that we have to be taught how to do that again. Yes, yeah, like that. Uh, you mentioned indigenous peoples. It's like we're paying, we're rediscovering a thing that was has been well known for mm. uh, thousands of years by people that we not only didn't listen to but tried to take away, not only do we take the stuff away from them, we took them away from it and tried to indoctrinate them with our understanding of reality. Uh, 
to their detriment and our detriment. That's right. And, and I mean, when you think about one of the central tenets, as, as a non-Indigenous person, I won't, won't explain it as well as it should be explained, but the central tenet um, that Aboriginal people in Australia always talk about is listening to country. You listen to country. And in a way that's hmm. a, it's a psychologically soothing thing for a person to be, take time out and be still and get off your devices and listen to country. But there's a second part of that, which is, is is country sick now? Like, what are we doing to country? Right. Are, are, are we um, caring for it? And are, are we disconnected from it? Are we taming it and conquering it and plundering it and mining it? Or are we nurturing it? Um, and Aboriginal people have always been custodians of the land. That's what we, um, you know, the phrase that we always use. And that's caretakers. And that's a fundamentally different understanding of what it means to be human. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's also this sort of myth making or revisionism that we can tell about, you know, first peoples where they also had problems with over hunting and uh, not uh, sort of burning large swaths of land to do what they want. I mean, human beings, I think, just generally have this tendency of of like sort of. Uh, there's the part of us that appreciates land and wants to be a custodian of it. Yeah. Then there's the other part of us that wants something for it. And so we exploit it and we ravage it and we steal from it. And we don't realize that what we're really doing is stealing from ourselves and stealing from the people that we claim to care about, which is our family and, you know, subsequent generations. Right. Exactly. For everyone. Um, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen evidence of that, you know, it, in Australian history, and we have the oldest continuous living culture on the planet, 65,000 years. And one of the big things that actually has been an issue is um, that um, Aboriginal people always um, did burning as a way of controlling the climate and controlling the temp, the, um, right. The the bushfires. So we're having, we have like having a lot of discussions around the times of these like horrific bushfires about whether, whether we've, not like well no we were rejecting their ancient wisdom on how you know if you sort of take over certain functions from nature then you also have to take over some of the destructive uh functions of nature or you make yourself super super vulnerable yeah exactly it's like in california like a million acres a year would burn on its own Mm -hmm. and then now nobody burns anything. And then the whole state catches on fire and people go, how could this happen? And it's like, this has been happening for a million years. Exactly. We just still have so much to learn on that front. I think we better do it quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Or, 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 uh, there won't be anything, anything left to learn. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you, I have some Victoria questions, which we'll loop back to, but I was curious, you know, like going through what you went through, um, I was struck when I, and obviously before I knew what you had gone through, one of the things I was struck by when I was reading about her life was just how much pain she must have been in as a human being or just throughout her life, not just the pain of the loss of her husband and the pain of childbirth, but it sounded like when they, when they sort of looked at her body after death, they were like, Mm -hmm. how did this woman stand this? I know. And that was one of those things I was awkward about um because i realized that too that's why she wanted to be carried around by strong servants a lot of the time i mean childbirth had literally kind of ravaged her body in a way that and she would never examined by doctors and um you know so she and she ne- never received any help for what must have been 
you know, an ongoing, very difficult physical condition. So that gave me a lot more insight and compassion into the fact that she was not physically mobile. If you're not physically mobile, you can have other attendant health issues and, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, and that was that the doctor found that she, um, yeah, that she'd had a prolapse on her on her um on her, her deathbed when he examined her and it's a thing of like do we tell that story when we tell a queen is that like too much um you know like you know going into her her privacy is it something we should know we shouldn't know and you don't want to be prurient about it but we also need to understand that in you know centuries past and and still today what what childbirth can do to women and what they endure silently um and well, it's like, I, I think it is important to talk about it. As you think about someone like Queen Elizabeth, and we sort of marvel at her decades and decades of service, mm. but then you're like, what if you found out she was also in chronic pain every single That's moment right. of that service? You realize like, oh, this wasn't like an impressive person. This was like a superhero. Like this is, mm. this is incomprehensible that a person could have done this. Yeah. So they talk about the veins of iron that went through Victoria's character. That's right. And they didn't have... You know the the pain relief in the in the way that they did now, and a lot of her uncles had been addicted to opium and had gout and like had done you know like were massively yeah. in debt and indulged every you know kind of gambling and like dozens of mistresses and all the rest of it. And she was so upright. Um, and but also think about another thing that she was constantly um, attacked for, which was her reclusiveness. She worked. She worked mm-hmm. very hard, but she didn't want to go out into public and she um, didn't want to leave the comfort of her carriage a lot of the time. Um, and towards the end of her life when she had a big jubilee, she didn't get out. The, the, it drew up in front of the um, abbey or the cathedral and she stayed in there for the rest of the ceremony. But now we would understand that if we know, again, that they, you're right, that she was in chronic pain. Yeah, you know, Churchill had that joke about, I forget who he's talking about, but he's like, uh, they're a modest man who has much to be modest about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of funny, you know, we admire sort of modesty or humility, uh, humility or restraint, but then you look at someone like Queen Elizabeth or you look at, uh, Queen Victoria and you're like, oh, but this person, this person is that way, mm-hmm. but they could get, if you look at their predecessors, particularly their male predecessors or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kings and royalty of, of, of any nationality in any country, you're like, Think of what you could get away with that you have chosen not to let yourself get away with. That I'm always very impressed with sort of voluntary regulation. Yes. You know, like she could have done whatever she wanted. Instead, she chose to work very hard. Yeah, I know. Um, <clears throat> I mean, she did stretch the limits of constitutionality. She did, you know, have... Um, a visceral dislike of William Gladstone, tried to prevent him from becoming Prime Minister. She corresponded with generals in the field directly about how to conduct the <laughs> war. So, I mean, when there was overreach, that was the kind of thing she did. But you're, uh, but you're right. I mean, she conducted herself in a way she didn't. She burst into tears upon discovering how close she was to the throne. And um, yeah, I think we know it's a heavy burden and an inherited power is a very peculiar thing. Um, I think we kind of can re- fundamentally recognise that. But <clears throat> she grasped it and she performed her duty. And so in- England has had the Victorian and the current, you know, Elizabethan eras of these women who 
uh, should never be underestimated as, you know, decorative or functional because of how hard they work. Um, and the fact that, you know, they're, 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 both of them have been the most famous uh, working women of their time. One of the, the things, there's a couple of things that in that book that you just sort of threw off offhandedly that really hit me. And, and one of them connects to the new book also. Um, and I ended up doing a bunch of research on it when I read it. But you sort of threw out this weird thing about William Gladstone, how he liked to just go cut down trees um, <laughs> as, a, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as a, as a I mean, it's, it's a form of, I guess, forest bathing, but also just sort of hobby and getting lost in the flow state of doing a thing. Mm. Uh, kind of an unusual hobby, but I just I love the peculiarity of it. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's so smart. I've not had anyone weave together these two books before, so that's quite a delightful insight for me. Um, that's right. I mean, and he would do it for months at a time. He would Thousands of trees he chopped down in his lifetime. Three, three months and then go off and really, I don't know, think about what to do about Ireland, um, read a few, like, you know, heavy tomes, and uh, he would, you know, conduct a few sermons. He was like, he gave a few sermons for his servants, which I'm sure they were thrilled about every week. Um, I mean, Victoria said she spoke to him. He speaks to me as if it was a public meeting. And that was part of his problem with the awkwardness of his relationship with her is that, you know, he was kind of um, strict and, and booming and very, very smart and but possibly charmless, whereas, you know, Benjamin Disraeli was so um, elegant in prose and and manner and constantly complimenting her and she was utterly charmed by it. I think he was, you know, really great company. So that was part of that. But, no, I think that's it. He did get into that's how he got into Flobe. And this is a man who gave four to five-hour speeches, you know, on the stump, which itself is hard to fathom as well. (laughs) Right. He must have been practicing them in his head as he was right. doing this. Yeah, the dot points for his work. But, you know, imagine the luxury of being able to do that now. Like, we can, we don't allow yeah. readers yeah. a, a day off, uh, let alone a weekend. Demand more of yourself in 2022. And one of the ways you can do that is by joining us in the Daily Stoic New Year, New You Challenge. All you have to do is go to dailystoic.com slash challenge to sign up. Remember, Daily Stoic Life members get this challenge and all our challenges for free. But sign up seriously. Think about what one positive change, one good new habit is worth to you. Think about what could be possible if you handed yourself over to a little bit of a program. We all pushed ourselves together. That's what we're going to do in the challenge. I'm going to be doing it. I do the challenges, all of them, alongside everyone else. I'm looking forward to connecting with everyone in the Discord challenge and all the other bonuses. Anyways, check it out. New Year, New You, The Daily Stoic Challenge. Sign up at dailystoic.com slash challenge. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. 
We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f***ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business.